soon it will be over. Which is exactly what the little girl in my dream said, holding my hand, pointing at the roiling sea and the sky hurtling our way like so many buffalo, who said, it's much worse than we think, and sooner. To whom I said, no Dutch out in my dreams. What do you think this singing and shuddering is? What this screaming and reaching and dancing and crying is other than loving what every second goes away? In a time like this, how do you find joy? In a recent episode of Krista Tippett's podcast, On Being, poet Ross Gay said, it is joy by which the labor that will make the life I want possible. It is not at all puzzling to me that joy is possible in the midst of difficulty. I'm Allison Stagner, Communications Manager at Seattle Arts and Lectures, and your guest host for today. Because Seattle is under shelter in place, I'm recording this from my living room, so please excuse the audio quality. But we weren't going to let COVID-19 stop us from bringing you Salon Air, our collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Besides being a disciple of joy, Roske is a gardener, a painter, a professor, a basketball player, and a founding member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a free fruit-for-all nonprofit focused on food, justice, and joy. He is the author of three books of poetry, including his most recent, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Its title poem is a long piece, which, Ross told the Los Angeles Times, was begun as, quote, a way to publicly imagine what it means for a person to be adamantly in love with my life. I wanted to realize joy as a fundamental aspect of our lives and practice it as a discipline. In a time when we found fundamental aspects of our lives fractured by COVID-19, let's let Ross's poems instruct us. These are dark times, friends. And what do you do during dark times? You plant seeds and wait for summer. This is Salon Air. I want to read you real quickly a poem by someone else. Um, do you know the poet Thomas Lux? Yeah, yeah, just that. Um, and... He died like two days ago, three days ago. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Tom was my teacher. Um, he was probably, um, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, and I was a real young writer when I went there, and um, and I, I just didn't know anything. And In my second semester, I took a class with Tom, and he's an ama- he was an amazing teacher, just like a masterful teacher, like could show you you know, could listen, could be patient with you. And um, he he really taught me how to write a poem. It wasn't like after his class, I knew how to write a poem, but he showed me the things that would eventually lead to poems. Um, anyway, you know, and then I was just, I've just the last two days been like listening to him on YouTube and, you know, on the Poetry Foundation. And I'm like, my God, like this was one of the people who taught me that poetry as a sort of act of joy, of radical joy is a real thing. Um, There's a poem called Render, Render. <clears throat> you know, I'm just going to tell you this story real quick. Me and this poet, Patrick Rosal, we were reading down at Georgia Tech at a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were reading at a, Georgia Tech, like 10 years ago now. And uh, 
Tom had a real distinct way of reading and uh, <laughs> and we were like at a party after the reading and we were imitating Tom um, just with he was just within earshot you know <laughs> and he was like he was with a few people and he said you know you raise them up like they're your own kids what do they do they mock you <laughs> yeah so anyway this is a poem called render render Bo and this, I'm going to try to read the first line, how you read it. Boil it down. Feet, skin, gristle, bones, vertebrae, heart muscle. Boil it down. Skim and boil again. Dreams, history. Add them and boil again. Boil and skim in closed cauldrons. Boil your horse, his hooves, the run-over dog you loved. The girl by the pencil sharpener who looked at you, looked away. Boil that for hours. Render it down. Take more from the top as more settles to the bottom. The heavier, the denser. Throw an ache or sperm and a bead of sweat that slid from your armpit to your waist as you sat stiff-backed before a test. Turn up the fire. Boil and skim. Boil some more. Add a fever. Add the virus that blinded an eye. Now's the time to add guilt and fear. Throw logs on the fire. Coal, gasoline, throw two goldfish in the pot. Their swim bladder is used for clearing. Boil and boil, render it down and distill. Concentrate that for which there is no other use at all. Boil it down, down, then stir it with rose water. That which is now one dense, fatty, scented red essence which you smear on your lips and go forth to plant as many kisses upon the world as the world can bear. He's a, he gave a lot to poetry. So I'm going to read to you from uh, this book, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Um, with the pretty cover. <laughs> and, you know, my, uh, um, my mom, when this book came out, she said, <laughs> she's like, oh, Rosie, that's the best cover you've had yet. I was like, <laughs> and then I had to tell her, I was like, well, that's the only cover I didn't actually paint, mom. <laughs> <laughs> She's a good mom. She's a good mom. This is called Sharing with the Ants. And I have some, you know, a, a lot of sort of fruit poems, tree poems, gardening poems. Um, so I'll read a few of these. Sharing with the Ants. A euphemism for some yank and gobble. No doubt some yummy tumble or other like monkey spanking or hiding the salami. Of course your mind goes there, loosey goose that you are. Me too. Me too. You have a favorite? Don't lie. I've heard you say them. Tending the hive, eating the melon. How's the tunnel traffic? 
Or as a massage therapist would say to my pal when his loneliness dragged him to a carpeted room in an apartment building in Chinatown where the small hands lathered his body, open the door, naturally sharing with the ants. Some entomologic metaphor, the chronic yoke in lovemaking, not only of body to body, but life to death, sharing with the ants. Or the specific act of dragging with the tongue one's sweat-gilded body from the tibia's lookout along the rope bridge of the Achilles, marching across the long plains of the calf and the meticulously unnamed zone behind the knee over the hamstring and to use your imagination for Christ's sakes. But I will tell you, it is dark there (laughs) and sweet, sharing with the ants. But that's not what I'm actually talking about at all. I mean sharing with the ants, which I did September 21st, a Friday in 2012, when by fluke or whim or prayer, I jostled the crotch-high fig tree whose few fruit had been scooped by our fat friends, the squirrels, but found shriveled and purple into an almost testicular papoose. That's a good image. smuggled beneath the fronds of a few leaves, one stalwart fruit, which I immediately bit in half, only to find a small platoon of ants twisting in the meat. And when I spit out my bite, another four or five lay sacked out, their spindly legs pedaling slow, nothing. (laughs) One barely looking at me through a half-open eye, the way an infant might curled into its mother's breast. And one stumbled dazed through my beard, tickling me as it tumbled head over feet, over head over feet, back into the bite in my hand. The hooked sabers of their mandibles made soft, kneading the flesh, their claws heavy and slow with fruit, their armor slathered plush as the seeds shone above, the sounds of their work like water slapping a pier at night. And not want to disrupt an orgy, I mostly gobbled around their nuzzle and slurp, careful not to chomp a reveler. And nibbling one last thread of flesh, I noticed a dozy ant nibbling the same toward me, its antenna just caressing my face, its pincers slowing at my lips, both of our mouths sugared and shining, both of us twirling beneath the figs, seeds spinning like a newly discovered galaxy that's been there forever. That's my, what's the word, is it entomology? That's my soft porn entomological poem. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is called Feet. So there's a couple things that you need to know. I think two things. Um, one, there's a comic book that maybe you all know now, again, if you didn't know before, called Power Man and Iron Fist. Okay. So Power Man was my hero. He's, he's also named Luke Cage. There's a TV show called Luke Cage. Some people have seen. Um, and Iron Fist was his, his teammate. Um, and The Real World was a show. Is it still a show? Okay. All right. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and uh, that's all you need to know. 
<coughs> feet. Friends, mine are ugly feet. The body's common wreckage stuffed into boots. The second toe on the left foot is crooked enough that when a child asks, what's that of it, I can, without flinch or fear of doubt, lie that a cow stepped on it, which maybe makes them fear cows, for which I repent, in love as I am with those philosophical beasts who would never smash my feet nor sneer at them the way my mother does. We always bought you good shoes, honey, she says. You can't blame us for those things. And for this and other reasons, I have never indulged in the pleasure of flip-flops, shy or ashamed, digging my toes like 10 tiny ostriches into the sand at the beach with friends who I'm not sure love me. Oh. <laughs> Though I don't think Tina loved me. She liked me, I think. But said to me as we sat on lawn chairs beside a pool where I lifeguarded and was meticulous at obscuring from view with a book or a towel, my screwy friends, you have pretty feet. In that gaudy cement mixer Levittown accent that sends all the lemurs scaling my rib cage to see, and she actually had pretty feet. And so I took this as a kindness incomparable and probably fell a little bit in love with her for that afternoon with the weird white streak in her hair and her machine gun chatter and her gum snapping. And so I slid my feet from beneath my Power Man and Iron Fist comic book into the sun for which they acted like plants opening their tiny mouths to the food hurtling to them through the solar system. And like plants, you could watch them almost smile almost say, thank you. You could watch them turn colors and be almost emboldened, none of which Tina saw because she was probably digging in her purse or talking about that hottie on the real world or yelling at some friend's little sister to put her ass in her trunks or pouring the crumbs of her Fritos into her thrown open mouth. But do you really think I'm talking to you about my fucking feet? <laughs> of course she's dead. Tina was her name of leukemia, so I heard. Why else would I try sadly to make music of her unremarkable kindness? I'm trying, I think, to forgive myself for something I don't know what. But what I do know is that I love the moment when the poet says, I'm trying to do this, or I'm trying to do that. Sometimes it's a horseshit trick. But sometimes it's a way by which the poet says, I wish I could tell you truly of the little factory in my head, the smokestacks chuffing, the dandelions and purslane and willows of sweet clover prying through the blacktop. I wish I could tell you how inside is the steady mumble and clank of machines, but mostly I wish I could tell you of the footsteps I hear more than I can ever count all of whose gates I can discern by listening closely, which promptly disappear after being lodged again here where we started in the factory where loss makes all things beautiful grow. Thank you. I'm writing this book of little essayettes 
And uh, that's not my name. It's a good name for a little essay. Someone, when I read a few someplace, someone said essay yet. And I said, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to do that. This one is called Nicknames. <clears throat> I'm writing in a notebook with the words, pay attention, which is a cousin to another notebook in my bag with the words, pay attention, motherfucker. <laughs> Printed on a Chandler and Price, that's a letterpress, that I co-own with my friend, which I have yet to see, for it is lodged in a print shop in Lubbock, Texas. My beloved co-owner pal, which makes him kind of a spouse, I suppose, who gifted me these delightful notebooks is named Boogie, or Boogs, and was so named by me. One of my greatest literary achievements. Boogie, or Boogs, might not be the first name you'd assign to Boogie, or Boogs, for a number of reasons. Perhaps the most significant of which is that he probably, he has definitely not spent a lot of time dancing, boogieing, which you might ascertain from his appearance, which would be a wrong thing to do, though you'd be right. <laughs> this is one of the reasons Boogie or Bugs is such a great nickname. It's a kind of curveball that has, with much repetition, become utterly natural, and his Christian name, Curtis, has come to seem awkward and clunky, kind of Lutheran, kind of Kurt. It's a clothesline of a name, really, Curtis is, the football kind. Another reason I love this nickname, and have now come to love how much I love this nickname, is because Boogie doesn't know that every time I say his name, I am also invoking the great and similarly nicknamed El Boogie, or Lauren Hill, whom I am guessing, wrongly, probably rightly, Boogie has never boogied to. <laughs> Boogie calls me Salpicon, which he tells me means sizzle, which I think fits pretty good. Though it would be a safe assumption, given my own delight, that the nickname Salpicon might afford Boogie some similarly pleasurable ironic association, which I do not need to know about. <laughs> I've shortened my nickname to Picon, whatever that means. Anyway, I love nicknames. They delight me. <laughs> I'm a bit of a nickname magnet. There are evidently people from whom nicknames are repelled like projectiles from Luke Cage's skin, Teflon to fried eggs. My friend Pat is one of them. Though the simple Spanish Spanishification of his name, Patricio, time to time, among some of us, is one that has endured, sort of, time to time, dropped the pa, and it's a nice name, Tricio. One that, in a generation or two, might become associated incorrectly and beautifully, and so correctly, with something, something arboreal. How delightful is that? I'm a bit of a nickname magnet and have been assigned the following aliases. Bizquick, Biz, Rahim, the compassionate, Beef, Beefy, Big Man, Bigs, Biggie, Big Lil Big, Big Papa, the Big Gay, Roski, Bones, Baby Boy, Baby Gay, the Baby, Booger, Beast, Saucy Sauce, Saucy Pants, Dr. Sauce, Dr. Hot Sauce, Ross the Boss, the King of Applesauce, Snozzers, Six, Unky, Daddy, and several others too lewd or private to share. I don't know exactly what nicknames mean, Though a quick reading of mine and the abundance of the B sound, that babyest of sound, buh, makes me think it might be primal. I know that I rarely call the people I love by their names. I call them, if it's okay with them, by the name I or someone close to me has given them. I wonder if this means I think of my beloveds as my children. That seems very patronizing, especially because I mostly don't give them money. But on the other hand, 
how lovely all my mothers, all my babies. I just looked at my watch um, to kind of recalibrate, and I don't, didn't even, I looked like this, like I was actually looking at it, but I didn't look at it at all. <laughs> this is called To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. Um, this was a real tree, like a 30-foot tree, right in Philadelphia, right across from Sabrina's, very good restaurant, I don't know if you know that place. To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. Tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up, the racket in the lug work, probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did, some crime or other. The city, they say, is a lonely place until, yes, the sound of sweeping and a woman, yes, with a broom beneath which you are now too, the canopy of a fig, its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose too and so works hard, rinsing and scrubbing the walk, lest some poor sod slip on on the silk of a fig and break his hip and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands when I ask about the tree. They flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, please help me. So I load my pockets and mouth and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more, but I was without a sack so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low slung branch and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remains of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree looking into it like a constellation and pointing, do you see it? And I am tall, and so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot, his head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night and maybe never said more than five words to me at once but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig which he smiles at and calls baby come here baby he says and blows a kiss to the tree which everyone knows cannot grow this far north being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily but no one told the fig tree or the immigrants there's a way the fig tree grows in groves it wants it seems to hold us yes I am anthropomorphizing god damn it I have Twice in the last 30 seconds, rub my sweaty form into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful, eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth. Strangers maybe never again.
Thank you. I want to read you. The, <clears throat> I want to read you this delight that I wrote today. It's called just an observation. Though an observation may not feel as though it qualifies as a delight, it is sometimes delightful to observe. That's all. Though the observation I'm making here is not particularly. I have been carrying around in my front left pocket for the last week or so, and consequently have probably developed some kind of wasting disease in the hip flexor or femur or other equally urgent and tender organs around there. A little photo from the New York Times of Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell, and Neil Gorsuch. I immediately noticed that these three silver-haired men, how good old days it must feel to them, who were all posing for a photo or photos and were presumably smiling, were actually frowning. I mean, their smiles are frowns. There is an internet phenom named Grumpy Cat. <laughs> who knows Grumpy Cat? <laughs> who knows Lil Bub? So Lil Bub lives in my town. That makes me famous. <laughs> there is an internet phenom named Grumpy Cat who has a perpetual and exaggerated frown, which these people do not. Though McConnell's visage is of someone whose penis is in a vice. <laughs> or of a cat who's just eaten the parakeet, which is, I guess, a kind of grumpy cat extremist. McConnell's is what I would call an alarmed smile frown, while the other Aryans are just smile frowning. My impulse, as you can tell, is to read the smile frowns, but I want to resist that. I couldn't resist McConnell's. I want to assign some kind of meaning to the smile frown, which is an easy enough speculative exercise, and I'm actually quite good at it, hovering in the liminal space between sensitivity and paranoia as I do. But yes, I want to resist that and instead return to the delight of observation, of noticing and of noticing undelightfully that these men, when they smile, frown. I was, I was carrying that around in my pocket and I was like, I'm probably actually getting sick doing it. <laughs> Enough of that. Um, oh. <laughs> this is called unsolicited, unaccosting touches. September 9th. Again, you know, they have that kind of current event feel to them. The other day I was sitting in a small town in Indiana, sipping a coffee, doing a little work while waiting to give a reading at the local college. I'd wandered the square, a feature of the small town Midwest, and this is a long parenthetical some of these have, a feature of the small town Midwest, a city hallish building in the center, always with some sad trumpeting of one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they then called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book, 
public figures alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given as beneficent dictatorship of one's own life anyway, is a delight. Even if illusory, the heart ticking crookedly, the aorta fraying in the bloodstream's windstorm, all new statues must have in their hands flowers or hoes or babies or seedlings or cute little animals or some such. We could go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it. And I also decree the removal of already extant guns. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. So I come back. I'd wander the square and walked by a storefront garage with huge Trump signs. Make America great again. It was a foreign auto repair shop and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. <laughs> I settled into the coffee shop where it seemed every black person in this town was hiding. Every one of them offering some version of the negreeting, except the guy I'd meet later that day who was deep in his computer typing away. Took my notebooks out and was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying a little to the new De La Soul record, delight, it'll probably garner its own entry. And a little white girl, she looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, was standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, pulled my headphones back, and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper? Good job to you, high five! <laughs> I must have looked really young that day. I was shaved that morning. <laughs> and you better believe I high-fived that little child <laughs> in her deaf leopard pre-ripped shirt and her itty-bitty Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in unsolicited, unaccosting public physical interactions. <laughs> Walking down the street in Umberte, oh, I love that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> That's in Italy. A few months ago, a trash truck pulled up beside me, and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again? Which is a ridiculous thing to say, because even if he had come again, I wouldn't have understood him. <laughs> he knew this, and hopping out of the truck to empty a couple cans of trash into the truck, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, and smacked my biceps hard. <laughs> Twice! I loved him. <laughs> or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder, forget it if she calls me honey or baby. Or someone scooting by puts their hand on my back, the handshake, the hug. I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane, not sure where, and shuffling down the aisle, I saw at the beginning of coach my great uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm and said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia. <laughs> Which made me look back at my not Uncle Earl, who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin 20 years ago. <laughs> and though it was benign, Though I did check in with my mother to see if Uncle Earl had died, he hadn't yet, and no one was hurt, it was a little weird. <laughs> and they looked a little freaked out. <laughs> All the same, 
Given his uncle Earl did die about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him. <laughs> and touch his forearm gently, lovingly, about a thousand miles away. I think I'm going to read you one more poem. It's a little bit long. Not really long. It's like an hour and a half. Just joking. This is called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. And it's a... Uh, the things you need to know is that it starts off and it sort of, yeah, it sort of starts, it starts in this Bloomington community orchard, which is this, it's an orchard in Bloomington, hence the name. And it's this incredible, what I think of as a sort of project, it's like a civic project. It's a project in how to love your neighbors. That's really what it is. You know, there's a, it's an, it's a almost entirely volunteer run organization. Um, but we, you know, this young woman named Amy Countryman, she did a senior thesis kind of project. She was trying to figure out food security in Bloomington and found that all, very few of the trees, the urban canopy made food producing, had food producing trees. So she thought, well, one of the solutions to that, and it's like a regular solution in various times of our, uh, in various times in various places, is to have like community orchards, public orchards. So she, proposed a public, she did this project, she proposed a public orchard. Um, her advisor said, well, go to the urban forester and see if that works, see what he says. So he said, if you can get support, community buy-in, let's do it. And she had a call-out meeting and, you know, like a hundred and some people came to the call-out meeting. So six months later, there was an orchard, you know, and there were so many incredible sort of struggles in the process of making this orchard, like, you know, you know, like, what are the practices we're going to use? What are the, um, how are we going to deal with the site, et cetera? The thing that's the most moving argument that we had, which was this deep sort of ethical struggle that we all had to come up with was, do we put a lock on the gate or not? Public orchard. It's a Bloomington community orchard. And, you know, because we put zillions of hours into making this thing and people were like, scared. And we didn't put a lock on the orchard. You know, there's not a lock there. That's part of it. The other thing is that there's this thing named Era Lee in this poem, who was an idea and who is now like a three-year-old child or something. Era Lee. Called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. I didn't have a drink before, because it's an hour and a half poem, so I gotta, I gotta get ready. <laughs> It's not an hour and a half poem. Don't worry. <clears throat> Friends. Friends. Will you bear with me today? For I have awakened from a dream in which a robin made with its shabby wings a kind of veil behind which it shimmied and stomped something from the south of Spain its breast a flare, looking me dead in the eye from the branch that grew into my window, coochie-cooing my chin. The bird shuffling its little talons left 
and then right while the leaves bristled against the plaster wall, two of them drifting on my blanket while the bird opened and closed its wings like a matador, giving up on murder. Jutting its beak, turning a circle and flashing again the ruddy bombast of its breast by which I knew upon waking it was telling me in no uncertain terms to bellow forth the tubas and sousaphones, the whole rusty brass band of gratitude not quite dormant in my belly. It said so in a human voice. Bellow forth. And who among us could ignore such odd and precise counsel? Hear ye, hear ye, I am here to holler that I have hauled tons, by which I don't mean lots, I mean tons of cow shit, and stood ankle deep in swales of maggots swirling the spent beer grains the brewery man was good enough to dump off, holding his nose, for they smell very bad but make the compost writhe giddy and lick its lips, twirling dung with my pitchfork again and again with hundreds and hundreds of other people we dreamt and orchard this way, furrowing our brows and hauling our wheelbarrows and sweating through our shirts. And less than a year later, there was a party at which trees were sunk into the well-fed earth one of which, a liberty apple, after being watered in, was tamped by a baby barefoot with a bow hanging in her hair, biting her lip in her joyous work. And friends, this is the realest place I know. It makes me squirm like a worm. I am so grateful. You could ride your bike there or roller skate or catch the bus. There's a fence and a gate twisted by hand. There's a fig tree taller than you in Indiana. It will make you gasp and might make you want to stay alive even. Thank you. And thank you for not taking my pal when the engine of his mind dragged him to swig fistfuls of Xanax and a bottle or two of booze. And thank you for taking my father a few years after his own father went down. Thank you, Mercy. Mercy, thank you for not smoking meth with your mother. Oh, thank you. Thank you for leaving and for coming back. And thank you for what inside my friend's love bursts like a throng of roadside goldenrod gleaming into the world, likely hauling a shovel with her like one named Airely Ott, with hands big as a horse's. And who, like one named Airely Ott, will laugh time to time till the juice runs from her nose. Oh, thank you for the way a small thing's whale makes the milk or what once was milk in us gather into horses huckle buckling across a field. And thank you, friends, when last spring the hyacinth bells rang and the crocuses flaunted their upturned skirts and a quiet roved the beehive, which when I entered were snugged two or three dead fist-sized clutches of bees between the frames, almost clinging to one another. This one's tiny head pushed into another's tiny wing one's forelegs resting on another's face, the translucent paper of their wings fluttering beneath my breath, and when a few drop to the frames beneath, honey, and after falling down to cry, everything's glacial shine. And thank you, too. And thanks for the corduroy couch I have put you on. Put your feet up. Here's a light blanket, a pillow, dear one, for I think this is going to be long. I can't stop 
my gratitude, which includes, dear reader, you for staying here with me, for moving your lips just so as I speak. Here's a cup of honey. Here's a cup of tea. I've spooned honey into it. And thank you, the tiny bee's shadow perusing these words as I write them. And the way my love talks quietly when in the hive, so quietly, in fact, you cannot hear her, but only notice barely her lips moving in conversation. Thank you what does not scare her in me, but makes her reach my way. Thank you the love she is, which hurts sometimes. And the time she misremembered elephants in one of my palms, which, oh, here they come. Garlanded with morning glory and wisteria blooms, trombones all the way down to the river. Thank you, the quiet in which the river bends around the elephant's solemn trunk, polishing stones, floating on its gentle back, the flock of geese flying overhead. And to the quick and gentle flocking of men to the old lady falling down on the corner of Fairmount and 18th holding patiently with the softest parts of their hands her cane and purple hat, gathering for her the contents of her purse and touching her shoulder and elbow. And thank you to the cockeyed basketball court on which, in a half-court three-on-three, we old heads made of some runny nose kids a shambles. And the 61-year-old, after flipping a reverse layup off a backdoor cut from my no-look pass to seal the game, ripped off his shirt and threw punches at the gods and hollered at the kids to admire the pacemaker's scar grinning across his chest. <laughs> Thank you, the glad accordions wheeze in the chest. Thank you, the bagpipes. Thank you to the woman barefoot in a gaudy dress for stopping her car in the middle of the road and the tractor trailer behind her and the van behind it, whisking a turtle off the road. Thank you, God of gaudy. Thank you, paisley panties. Thank you, the organ up my dress. Thank you, the sheer dress you wore kneeling in my dream at the creek's edge and the light swimming through it. The coy kissing halos into the glassy air. The room in my mind with the blinds drawn where we nearly injure each other, crawling into the shawl of the other's body. And thank you, when I just say it plain, we fuck each other dumb. And you, Again, you, for the true kindness it has been for you to remain awake with me like this, nodding time to time, or making that noise, which I take to mean, yes, or I understand, or please go on, but not too long, or why are you spitting so much, or easy, tiger, hands to yourself. I'm excitable. I'm sorry. I'm grateful. I just want us to be friends now, forever. Take this bowl of blackberries from the garden. The sun has made them warm. I picked them just for you. I promise I will try to stay on my side of the couch. And thank you, the baggie of dreadlocks I found in a drawer while washing and folding the clothes of our murdered friend. The photo in which his arm slung around the sign to the trail of silences. 
Thank you. The way before he died, he held his hands open to us for coming back in a waft of incense or in the shape of a boy in another city looking from between his mother's legs or disappearing into the stacks after brushing by for moseying back in dreams where seeing us lost and scared, he put his hand on our shoulders and pointed us to the temple across town. And thank you to the man all night long hosing a mist on his early bloomed peach tree so that the hard frost not waste the crop. The ice in his beard and the ghosts lifting from him when the warming sun told him, sleep now. Thank you, the ancestor who loved you before she knew you by smuggling seeds into her braid for the long journey. Who loved you before he knew you by putting a walnut tree in the ground. Who loved you before she knew you by not slaughtering the land. Thank you, who did not bulldoze the ancient grove of dates and olives. Who sailed his keys into the ocean and walked softly home. Who did not fire. Who did not plunge the head into the toilet. Who said, stop, don't do that. Who lifted some, broken someone up. Who volunteered the way a plant birthed of the reseeding plant is called a volunteer, like the plum tree that marched beside the raised bed in my garden, like the arugula that marched itself between the blueberries, nary a bayonet, nary an army, nary a nation, which usage of the word volunteer, familiar to gardeners the wide world, made my pal shout, oh, and dance and plunge his knuckles into the lush soil before gobbling two strawberries and digging a song from his guitar made of wood from a tree someone may be planted. Thank you. And thank you, Zinnia and Gooseberry, Rebecca and Paw Paw, Ashmead's Colonel, Coxcomb and Scarlet Runner, Feverfew and Lemon Balm. Thank you, Knitbone and Sweetgrass and Sunshoke and False Indigo, whose petals stammered apart by bumblebees. Good Lord, give me a minute. And moon glow and catkin and crook neck and painted tongue and seed pot and Johnny jump up. Thank you. What in us raggeds glad? What glad raggeds us? And thank you to this knuckle headed heart, this pelican heart, this gap toothed heart flinging open its gaudy maw to the sky. Oh clumsy. Oh bumblefucked. Oh giddy. Oh dumbstruck. Oh rickshaw. Oh goat twisting its head at me from my peach tree's highest branch, balanced and possibly gobbling the last fruit, its tongue working like an engine, a lone sweet drop tumbling by some miracle into my mouth like the smell of someone I've loved. Heart like an elephant screaming at the bones of its dead. Heart like the lady on the bus dressed head to toe in gold, the sun shivering her shiny boots, singing Erica Badu to herself, leaning her head against the window. And thank you the way my father one time came back in a dream by plucking the two cables beneath my chin like a bass fiddle strings and played me until I woke singing and smiling. No kidding. Thank you. Thank you. Stumbling into the garden where the June berries flowers had burst open like the bells of French horns. The lily my mom and I planted, it oozed into the air. The bazillion ants labored in their earthen workshops below. The collard greens waved in the wind like the sails of ships. And the wasps swam in the mint bloom's viscous swill. And you, again you for hanging tight. Dear friends, <clears throat> I know I can be long-winded sometimes. 
I want so badly to rub the sponge of gratitude over every single thing, which includes you, which is awkward. Yes. A little soap going into your sweatshirt, behind your glasses. Soon it will be over, which is exactly what the little girl in my dream said, holding my hand, pointing at the roiling sea and the sky, hurtling our way like so many buffalo, who said, it's much worse than we think, and sooner. To whom I said, no Dutch out in my dreams. What do you think this singing and shuddering is? What this screaming and reaching and dancing and crying is other than loving what every second goes away? Goodbye, I mean to say. And thank you every day. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment to hear more from Ross Gay and his Q&A with Sal Associate Director Rebecca Hoogs. But first, since we're all worried about our economy, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our Community Access Tickets Program, or CAT for short. At Sal, we believe that reading, writing, and creative thinking are indispensable to a curious, engaged, democratic society. Our goal is to make these experiences available to as many people as possible, If you're living in the Seattle area and you find yourself facing economic hardship, we encourage you to apply for CAT. CAT allows folks who are priced out of our lowest seating levels to be entered into a drawing for free tickets to any of our events. Head to lectures.org slash community dash access or look for a link at the bottom of our homepage at lectures.org to sign up. We hope you can join us. And now, Back to Ross Gay with interviewer Rebecca Hoogs. Oh my goodness, thank you so much, Ross. That was amazing. If you have a question for the poet, please write on a card and pass it to an usher. And how can you not have questions or just praise? You can just send your praise up too. Um, I'm curious, how did you first get into writing and were you a reader and a writer as a kid? (laughs) You know, when I was real little, um, I read poems. Uh, hey, thank you again for that poem. Yeah, when I was real, I think when I was real little, I read, but, um, you know, I read comic books for a little while. I would read Power Man and Iron Fist. Um, but I didn't read, you know, I wasn't like a reader. A lot of, or a good number of writers, it seems to me, like when they're little. I just read a bio on the back of someone's book, and it said, the bio said something like, so-and-so knew she was going to be a writer from the time she was eight. I was going to be a basketball player or a football player or something. Um, and I remember a lovely story. I remember I, I had gotten some records off that, I think, the Columbia Record Company, the thing, the mail order thing. And uh, I was sitting somewhere, my father was an avid reader. He was always reading. In fact, (laughs) he always had his face in a book. And we used to say like, I wonder if some of those books don't have any words in it. It's just a way for him to be able to like (laughs) ignore us when we're getting too loud, you know? (laughs) Um, But 
he saw me like I could overhear him. I was listening on headphones, his headphones on his record player. He over or I overheard him watching me read the lyrics to Earth, Wind, and Fire songs, and because I was and am a, a big Earth, Wind, and Fire guy, and I heard him say, "Well, at least he's reading something." <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So then, when did you find poetry? In uh, my sophomore year of college, I took a class, and uh, um, I was a football player in college, and I was close to losing my funding, my scholarship, and I um, I had a class with a guy named David Johnson, and he made me give a presentation on Amiri Baraka, and I started reading poems that were. Um, articulating things about alienation and race and class mm-hmm. um, that I had not, I had felt, but I had no sort of way to articulate or, mm-hmm. or think about, mm-hmm. yeah. So jumping forward to the present, and I want to ask you about the essays or the essayettes mm-hmm. and the delights. What, why, why move to that form and what do you feel that you were able to do in these little essays that you can't do in poetry, or what sort of what sort of permission or um, opportunity do they give you that feels different from poetry? You know, um, I'm not sure what is different. I mean, what I like about the essay mm-hmm. as a form is that it's, in a way, it's like it's formless. You know, mm-hmm. it's um, it's whatever you want to do. Um, whereas poems, they're actually, you know, really sort of intensely in my, in my mind, they're sort of intensely made things and, um, essays are also intensely made things, but poems, I have a sort of, um, um, probably a kind of understanding of the form or practice in the form such that they're, they're, they can, they're still tremendously surprising to me. Every poem I write is a kind of surprising, but essays are, this is it. Essays are things that I don't know how to write. Mm. I really don't know how to write essays. Um, and I'm into doing stuff that mm-hmm. I don't know, don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, you you didn't read this poem tonight, but you have a book, a poem in your book called "To the Mistake." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say today I'm lecturing on the miracle of the mistake in a poem that hiccup or weird gift, and you know you go on from there. But I thought yeah. that was so interesting. Like, how do you know? And it maybe relates to the surprise thing, but how do you know what a mistake in a poem is? Why and why call it a mistake? Yeah, well, the I, I think I'm probably trying to draw the metaphor. That's a poem in which I talk about this mistake, although maybe it wasn't a mistake. In which I, before a reunion for like the gifted and talented in, in high school, I took acid, and it was like, <laughs> and it was like <laughs> so it was like you know I basically I kind of. It was just a dumb mistake. Like, you know, we took, we took it like four hours before the thing. And I was like, well, and I, like I was a non-drug guy. Like I, I didn't, I had never smoked weed before, you know? And like, I didn't even drink alcohol, but I was like, like yeah, let just me go take big. two tabs of acid before the, the reunion. Um, and as you know, from your laughter, I was tripping very hard with this reunion with my teacher, Mr. Knowles, and his wife, Mrs. Zeiss Knowles, and, and these 30 other kids who were not on acid, as far as I know. <laughs> That's the actual mistake. I was trying to like make that mistake mm-hmm. and the sort of accident, mm-hmm. the accident of a poem, mm-hmm. um, pull together mm-hmm. as, a, as a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's a question from the audience. Uh, this person says, this may be a silly question, but no disclaimers, but have you always been so joyful? And if not, what caused you to be? I don't know. Um, no, you know, like, I'm a sort of a melancholy dude, actually. You know? Um, and, like, to me, joy is this, I'm trying to like, you know, I love the life of sort of meditating on what joy is. Um, and um, I, first of all, I feel like joy is a kind of discipline, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels to me that joy is not like, I don't, you know, sometimes people are like, you're so happy. And I'm like, um, Joy to me is, is something like this understanding that everything is going away. Um, we are fading as we speak, mm -hmm. right? And everything we love. And, and first of all, I mean, maybe the thing that is joy is recognizing that that is a fundamental connection between us, you know? It's a fundamental connection between us. And to recognize that and that it's like, you know, like a forest, like we're all connected by those things, by mycelium and stuff. Um, if we and it's a kind of like nourishment. Like yes, this is this is over, you know. That we might then care for each other better, you know. And we might exist in the world in a certain kind of way differently too. Um, that's sort of. I mean, that's that's. I'm sort of inquiring in in myself and in my head what joy is, and it feels to me that that is sort of part of it. So that joy is, you know, to be joyful strikes me as a kind of practice in the midst of, you know, the horrors. Um, how how do you remain that thing, you know, or cultivate, or you know, how what. What have you been doing, or how how are you continuing to practice joy in this particular political moment, staying sane, practicing joy, but also resisting? Do you find it harder? Do you have different strategies for yourself? I mean, part of it is like, um, you know, working, like doing shit, calling my senators and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, that's part of it. Um, but also meditating in a very real way on... Um, on the collaborations that we're going to, that we are already doing and we're going to be doing that is, you know, I think will be unlike, you know, will be, will be really incredible and beautiful. I feel like there's this sort of, a different kind of tenderness might be emerging. Um, and, you know, where, where this sort of deep connection to one another might become even more sort of, mm -hmm. Um, present, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, obviously mm -hmm. I'm like um, scared and um, all of these other things, and I'm also like very curious about what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've seen such beautiful sort of uh, solidarity, um, beautiful. So. That's part of it, attending to that, really attending to that, you know. Um, this might be 
related a little bit, but my high school uh, question from the audience, my high school students um, are about to write odes in my English class. What advice do you have for young people about how to notice things around them and how do you choose what to praise? Hmm. You know, like <laughs> part of the game with this, this book of delights is just, um, again, that's like a muscle, you know? Mm. Like attending to what delights you is a muscle. And if you do it a lot, you're going to do it a lot. Mm. It's just like a thing. It's like doing push-ups. And like, um, you know, and it's like, it's real. Like if I, if I write, I write them often enough. If I write four in a row, you know, five in a row, six in a row, seven in a row, like there'll be days when I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh, that's a delight. Oh, that's a delight. Oh, that's a delight. Oh, that's what I want my life to be, you know? Um, so partly like I would tell, I mean, I'm also like, I've been a basketball coach a lot of years. I'd be like, say a hundred things that delight you like this morning, you know, right. the toast, right. you know, right. the butter, right. <laughs> you know, orange juice. Wasn't from concentrate. Delightful. <laughs> <laughs> this person says, tell us more about the orchard. What is your vision and hope for the garden? Well, so I was gone last year um, from the orchard. I've been on the board of the orchard for, I was on it for four years or something, and then off for a year. And I think we're in like the sixth year or something like that. Um. And the organization has just been doing these incredible things. Like we're, we're first of all, like getting, you know, we have this maintenance of the site that we're doing. And that's one thing, which means like taking care of the trees, like sort of, you know, growing them up into um, their productive years and figuring out how to, how, to, um, how to manage the fruit, but also how to sort of manage that as a site. Um, meaning like how to mow, like just basics, mm -hmm. how to mow, how mm -hmm. to keep it pretty enough for the city and everyone to be like, oh yeah, that's a pretty mm -hmm. thing. Um, but I think a lot of what's happening is that there's these beautiful collaborations happening. So the orchard is collaborating, has these things called partner plantings. So little neighborhoods that want to have an orchard, they collaborate with the orchard mm -hmm. and get a little help in starting their, their own orchards. Mm -hmm. In a way, that's sort of the most magical mm -hmm. stuff that we do. We have this site, which is beautiful, which you should come to if you're in Indiana, in Bloomington, Indiana, you know, between, come anytime, but, you know, stuff is more interesting. If you're a gardener, it's always interesting. But like in April, May, June, July, et cetera, it's incredible. Um, so the site is really incredible. But we do all of this other sort of outreach sort of um, propagating mm -hmm. types of stuff, mm -hmm. you know. We teach lots of classes, you know. Um, what is your favorite plant to grow? <laughs> um, favorite plant to grow? I get a thrill out of uh, growing greens across the board. Um, partly because I love eating greens and partly because I love eating my own greens from like April <laughs> to December. Like that just makes me so happy. Um, I love growing garlic. It does not stop fascinating me that you stick one clove in and it turns into a bulb. It's crazy. Seeds mm -hmm. are crazy. Um, I have these fruit trees that are really wonderful. And I live in a place where there's a lot of sort of, you know, disease. You get rots and funguses. So when they come out good, you know, um, that's incredible. There's a fruit called a, a gumi that we talked mm -hmm. about a little bit before. And it's a, um, 
it's just a very easy to grow fruit. It's uh, red and kind of a little bit tart. The longer it's on the branch, it gets sweet. And it will kind of actually sort of wizen uh, on the branch and sort of get a little fermenty. Um, but it's sweet and speckled and gorgeous, and it puts uh, uh, nitrogen in the soil, and it makes beautiful flowers that the bees love, and it smells good. I mean, there's 10,000 good things about this plant, and the food, the fruit tastes so good. I love that, too, and because you don't have to do anything to it. Mm-hmm. You just put it in the ground, and it just kind of feeds itself, and I love other plants, too. <laughs> <laughs> Potatoes. I mean, potatoes are ridiculous, right? (laughs) It's so fun. My brother and his wife brought their kids out to Indiana, and they're like, they weren't gardeners. They're not gardeners, you know. And the kids were dressed nicely for some reason. I'm not sure why. They were in the car. Um, And it was time to harvest potatoes. I'm like, come on, guys. Let's go harvest some potatoes. (laughs) So they're in, like, these little sweet little dresses and, like, those shoes, you know, with the little buckles on them. (laughs) And digging in the potatoes. (laughs) It's Uncle Rossi. You got to let him do it. <laughs> um, Wait, but sweet yeah. potatoes, too. Oh, oh. <laughs> sweet potatoes, too. <laughs> we cannot forget about sweet potatoes. <laughs> no, we can't. Sweet potatoes are incredible. And the greens are so damn good. Mm-hmm. They grow so abundant. The greens are yummy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you address the reader quite often in your poetry. And I was wondering how much you think of the reader when you are writing? Is, is the reader a sort of presence for you when you're, when you're in the process of composing? You know, kind of like yes and uh, no. Like, I, I, I am a writer that's a... Like, I, part of the joy of my writing life is, like, this mm-hmm. sort of public sharing the work. So I'm very conscious of, like, trying to figure out how to make a poem do what it needs to do for me, which is like to have a sort of, I need a poem to sort of uh, be a kind of ex- experience of transformation. Like I have a question and that question either needs to be further illuminated or it has to be answered in a way or some actual thing in me needs to be transformed in the process of writing a poem. That's what I, that's what I hope for. And if the poem can be like a, a map for some sort of similar experience, that's great, and I and I hope for that, you know, and, and I hope for it in the process of writing the poem too. So in a way, I am aware of that. The other thing is that I'm aware of an audience as I'm writing poems because I, I think very much about what they sound like in the air, you know, mm-hmm. for other people's bodies, like for my body as well as other people's bodies. So I'm aware of that, and I'm aware of how they're going to come out of my mouth. So I will revise poems so that. There are some word sounds that are hard to say together. And I'll mm-hmm. tweak a poem for that reason. Mm-hmm. Do you read out loud as you're composing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, this writer, uh, this person asked, how do you know when a poem's done? Well, there is that, that most important thing, which is that I, I, I need to feel sort of transformed, mm-hmm. you know? I need to feel different. Um, and which means that sometimes a poem can be done and be very useful, but not, might not be a poem that I share because I, it did what it needed to do for me, but I don't, it doesn't seem like it's good beyond, you know. I have poems like that that have been very useful um, for me in that way. I also have really good readers. I have a handful of friends who will read my poems and tell me, mm-hmm. you went too far or, mm-hmm. you know, Go or farther. it's not done. Yeah. 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 Um, how do you define uh, 
poetic vulnerability and how does it show up in poems, either for you or for poets you like to read? There's so many things, the ways to maybe talk about that. Because um, it, it could mean like the sort of, <clears throat> um, every poem is kind of vulnerable in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, but I think it means the sort of uh, openness, the sort of uh, availability or something to an audience. Um, and what, say the question again, how do you define it? Or? How do you define, or how does it show up in, in poems that you love, or poems you're either by other people, or poems yeah. that you're trying to write? And is it something that you're striving for? It is or? absolutely something I'm striving for. Um, I mean, the truth is that I want to do very serious work in my poems. Mm -hmm. And that work is often sort of psychic, emotional, spiritual work. Um, and if I'm doing it and sort of uh, leaving a kind of artifact of that experience, it's, it's, it's kind of necessarily going to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it, you know, poems are the ways that I work things out, you know, like the, it's how I think, you know, writing is one of the ways that I really think. Conversation is another way. Thinking is another way. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a better thinker as a writer, mm -hmm. you know, a more. I just want to say the person who most um, has modeled for me a kind of poetic vulnerability is Toy Derricotte. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like if you want to learn how to be exposed, uh, like radically courageous mm -hmm. in, in sharing, um, you know, mm -hmm. that toy Derrica. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ross. It's been a great gift uh, to have you here tonight. Yeah. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much to Ross Gay for joining us on the Sal stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. The show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.